At this point, if you are anywhere from three years old through pre-K, we'd love to invite you to join Philip down for hands-on Bible, if you'd like. Well, it was certainly a short-lived revolution, a whopping six days. And what was supposed to be the week that was going to change the world ended in disaster. There had been all that excitement on Palm Sunday, but it literally all died on Friday afternoon. Jesus of Nazareth, that odd, itinerant, Sometimes irritating, miracle-working, prophecy-speaking craftsman from the sticks up in Galilee. He had finally ended the whole is-he-or-isn't-he mystery. He rode into Jerusalem on that Sunday to, to cheering crowds, waving the palm branches that indicated the arrival of a king. Finally, Jesus was speaking clearly. He was the rightful descendant of King David. He was the anointed king of Israel. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. And Jerusalem had not seen this kind of excitement for years, maybe centuries, because the Christ had come at last. And finally, he was going to throw out the Roman Empire. Finally, he was going to liberate the nation and make Israel great again. But then, as this week that was supposed to change the world wore on, it got weird. This wasn't how it was supposed to work. He didn't say anything about the Romans. Not really, other than pay your taxes. Instead, he started busting up the temple, knocking over the businesses, condemning the religious leaders, really condemning the whole nation for being hypocrites. Okay, it's not what they were looking for, but still, the times were pretty exciting. There were some inspirational elements about it. You could sort of get into it. Then he got arrested. and didn't even fight back. He went on trial. He didn't even argue in his own defense. He was whipped to within an inch of his life. Paraded out of town, stripped naked, nailed to a cross. And on Friday afternoon, Jesus of Nazareth died in agony along with his revolution. Yet another revolution had been crushed under the hobnailed leather sandal of the Roman legion. So much for the week that was supposed to change the world. It would be understandable for an observer of these events to take this perspective, to see things this way because of what appears to be total failure on Friday afternoon. We know this is the wrong perspective because we know what takes place the following Sunday. If you don't, I'm not going to give it away. Don't be surprised. Come back next Sunday. We'll talk about it. It turns out that the very thing that took place that Friday afternoon on that cross is the very thing that made it the week that changed the world. On that cross, Jesus Christ changed the entire trajectory of the world, the entire trajectory of human history, and set creation on a path towards restoration and freedom and reconciliation and redemption. And to understand this, this greater truth about the death of Jesus amidst 
the misery of the cross. We, we simply just need to start looking more closely at the events of that afternoon. And so this, this morning I'm going to read from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The cross is where every thread of theology intersects. Here on the cross, just in this short passage alone, we could talk about the cross for months, for years. But here in this short passage, these few verses, we see three critical aspects of Jesus at work. We see the innocence of Jesus, we see the forgiveness of Jesus, and we see the salvation of Jesus. And in seeing his innocence, his forgiveness, and the salvation that he offers on the cross, we see what it is that truly made this the week that changed the world. We must observe as we read the Gospel account that Luke's Gospel emphasizes over and over again the innocence of Jesus. We must never lose sight of this. The world would have lost sight of this because crucifixion was a terrible, humiliating punishment that was reserved for the worst sort of criminal. So it would be natural to assume this guy's a criminal. A criminal who was going to be crucified was typically scourged beforehand. I won't go into the details, but it's a brutal whipping that is designed to accelerate death. They would then be paraded out of town, stripped naked, tied or nailed to their cross, and there they would hang, sometimes for days until they became so weak from exposure and dehydration and pain and fatigue that they could no longer pull themselves up to draw breath, ultimately dying by asphyxiation. Crucifixion was engineered, if you will. It was intentionally painful. The English word excruciating comes from the Latin word describing the agony of the cross. Crucifixion was engineered to be intentionally humiliating. For a Jewish person, it was twofold, because not only was it shameful to be seen naked as you hung there dying for days sometimes, but if you were to die while hanging from a wooden structure, Deuteronomy indicated you were cursed by God. 
For the Romans, crucifixion was all about making sure everybody knew who was in charge. The misery and the humiliation of crucifixion was all about deterring serious crime against the empire. And as we read the gospel account, we see that crucified beside Jesus were two men who were definitely criminals. They belonged there. They deserved it. The Greek word that's used in Luke's account is a word that literally means evildoers. What's translated here is criminals. Elsewhere in Scripture, they are described using a word that can be translated either as robber or revolutionary. So the point is, as Luke emphasizes, these were legitimately bad guys who were dying. Verse 32 emphasizes two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And so Jesus of Nazareth was being crucified as a rebel. That's actually the significance of verse 38. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Right? That inscription over him is not a name tag. It was the formal charge for which he was being crucified. That was nailed to the cross with the individual so that everyone would know why, why was this individual killed. So he's crucified for rebellion, but the point that Luke is emphasizing over and over again is that Jesus was neither a rebel nor a criminal. Over and over again, those present emphasize his innocence. There are, in fact, as you read Luke chapter 23, four different witnesses who independently attest to the innocence of Jesus. Again, you see the Bible telling you something four times in the same chapter, you need to take note. The point we are to take away is this. Jesus was innocent. Pilate and Herod proclaim it in verses 14 and 15. You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Those are your first two witnesses professing the innocence of Jesus Christ. People we think of as villains, Pilate and Herod. The third witness is one of the criminals, verse 41. He says, And we indeed justly for receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And finally, if you continue reading a few more verses, you see the centurion who oversees the entire crucifixion in verse 47 affirms, Certainly this man was innocent. This is critically important for us to understand. Jesus of Nazareth was completely innocent. He had committed no crime. He deserved no punishment. He had done nothing wrong, and yet they crucified him anyway, as verse 33 describes. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So there on this hill, English translation, the skull, in Aramaic, Golgotha, in Latin, Calvary, Jesus was nailed to a cross to suffer and suffocate. And what we need to recognize is that every dreadful event that Friday afternoon was part of God's eternal plan for the week. And it was a plan that he had described centuries earlier in Psalm 22. And I'll highlight some of those verses as we go along. But I would encourage you this week, as you think on the events of Holy Week, as you think on on what takes place on Good Friday, spend some time in Psalm 22, written centuries earlier. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, he is fulfilling verse 16. 
For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. One on his right, one on his left. Right? What does Luke's gospel call them? Evildoers. They have pierced my hands and feet. And it is here at this moment as Jesus is hanging there, dying in agony, that we see this beautiful, profound display of the forgiveness of Jesus. While he is suffering with nails driven through his hands and feet, Jesus is praying for the forgiveness of those who nailed him there. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The leaders and the soldiers, Jews and Roman alike, they had arrested him, they had abused him, they had tried him, they had humiliated him, they had tortured him, and they had nailed him to a cross to die, and his response was to forgive them and to pray to God to intercede on their behalf. Those who had crucified Jesus were certainly responsible for what they'd done. It was a miscarriage of justice. They were responsible, but they, they didn't fully understand that when they nailed this man to the cross, they were crucifying the Son of God. And so in their ignorance and in their guilt, Jesus forgives them. On the cross, Jesus is fulfilling quite literally the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Makes intercession. Praise from the cross for those who have sinned against him. The forgiveness of Jesus extends to everyone who nailed him to that cross. On that cross, Jesus was carrying the sin of many. Not, not just those who physically nailed him to it, but, but every single person in the world who has ever sinned including you and including me. Your sins and mine were, were part of what was nailed to the cross when Jesus was. Paul explains this in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our sins, our mistakes, our failures, our shame, our guilt, the entire record and list of every single person that we have hurt by our words and by our actions, all of that was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Jesus, the innocent, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who did no wrong, who didn't deserve to die, was nailed to that cross, not just by, by a group of Roman soldiers 20 centuries ago, but by your sin yesterday, my sin today, and our sins tomorrow. This marvelous forgiveness of Jesus that he demonstrates through this prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This prayer, this intercession, this forgiveness of Christ extends to us. And thank you, Lord, for that. that. Just as Christ forgave those who literally nailed him to the cross, he also forgives us for everything that we have done, and all we have to do is ask for it. 
But as we look at the cross, as we see the events of that Friday afternoon, we see that there is far more being offered by Jesus than just one-time forgiveness of our sins. And thank heavens for that, because if we just got one-time forgiveness, we would just mess it up the next day. But here at the cross, we see the salvation of Jesus, by which we receive eternal life in the presence of God. Throughout this passage, again, you know, this passage is, Scripture is amazing, this passage is amazing. Throughout this passage, we see over and over again people mocking Jesus, telling him, you need to, if you're all that, you need to demonstrate your power by saving yourself. This is what they think of as a demonstration of power. Save yourself. First, it's the Jewish leaders in verse 35. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Then it's the Roman soldiers in verse 36 and 37, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then it's one of the criminals dying beside him in verse 39. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And as all these people are making fun of Jesus, they, they don't even realize they are fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22, 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is the greatest thing they could think of, is if you're all that, save yourself. But Jesus is so far beyond that. They do not understand that Jesus wasn't hanging on that cross to save himself. He was there to save us. And he allowed himself to be crucified as the innocent sacrifice required to pay the penalty for all the sins of the world. That he was the last, the ultimate sacrifice of innocent blood required to cancel the debt of everyone who puts their faith in him. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 explains it this way. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish, innocent, to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus hung on that cross to save others, to save you and to save me. And to save all those who haven't yet heard about him, who will one day believe in him. All of our sins, whether we like to categorize them as big or we like to categorize them as small. And by the way, those are not valid theological categories. Sin is sin. But whether we call them big or whether we call them small, all of the terrible things and then all of the just dumb, embarrassing things that we have ever done against God's will, against His plan for human flourishing, for what's best for mankind, all of those things have racked up a, a, a mountain-high pile of debt to God. Right? If you think student loans are bad, it is nothing compared to this. What we have each piled up towards the righteous, the holy, the just, the perfect God who created the universe. And worse than any student loans, even for an Ivy League, we cannot hope to pay off this debt just by working harder, being a better person, giving more of our time or our money, going to church more often. 
Rather, Hebrews 9.26 proclaims he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what happened that Friday afternoon. That's why this week changed the world. Because Jesus sacrificed himself on that cross to free us from the debt, to free us from the weight and the burden and the filthiness and the shame and the guilt of all of our past mistakes and our past sins. And so it is deeply ironic that those who are mocking Jesus, right? They're not just saying, ah, you're getting killed and making fun of him that way. No, they mock him in a very specific way. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. They don't understand that Jesus hung on that cross to save others. That he hung on that cross to save you and me. That Jesus hung on that cross precisely because he was the Christ of God. No one else could have hung on that cross and accomplished what he accomplished because he was innocent. That Jesus hung on that cross specifically because he was God's chosen one. That he was chosen to bear the penalty for the sins of the world. That he was chosen that Friday afternoon to bear God's righteous anger toward all of our rebellion, all of our destruction, all of the, the mess that we've made of our lives and the mess that we have made in the world around us. And the salvation of Jesus is offered to everyone and anyone who puts their faith in him as Lord and Savior, who admits their sin and their inability to save themselves from it, who admit they need a Savior because they just can't get it done themselves, and who recognize that Jesus is that Savior. This is the true meaning of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, gave him, to live on this earth, gave him to die on that cross. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the salvation that Jesus freely offers to you and to me and to, to everyone who will call on him regardless of their past mistakes and their ex past experiences, regardless of their race or their citizenship or their immigration status, regardless of their income or their education, regardless of their religious training or their lack thereof. Jesus doesn't just teach this. He demonstrates it for us perfectly while he is hanging on the cross. This extraordinary offer of salvation that is open to anyone, even the worst sort in humanity, is displayed while he is dying on that cross. I don't think I've ever quite realized as much as this week as I was preparing this. Just wow, a perfect image of the entire gospel of Jesus Christ we see in these few verses. Because in verses 40 to 43, we witness the salvation of an evildoer, a criminal, a revolutionary or robber. And it is a salvation that is based on nothing more than the grace of God received through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, we think of crucifixion as being a point in time, but in fact, it's a process of several hours. At the beginning of the process, when Jesus is first nailed to the cross, both of the criminals on his side are mocking him. Both of them are insulting him. Matthew 27, 44 says, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. That's the start of the afternoon. 
But as the afternoon wore on, as one of these two criminals was paying attention and saw the truth of Jesus, saw his innocence, saw his forgiveness, saw the sacrifice he was making, one of these two men believed. This is the one that rebukes the other criminal in verses 40 and 41. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus in verse 42, asking him for salvation. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so here is this criminal, hanging on a cross all his own, dying, recognizing his sin, confessing it, admitting it, admitting that because of it he deserves to die, recognizing the innocence and the perfection of Jesus Christ, recognizing that he, this criminal nailed to a cross, can't possibly pull himself out of the wreckage of his life but that Jesus could. This criminal knew he was about to be dead. But at that moment, he turns to Jesus as his king and asks for salvation. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here, in these few verses, we see the gospel of repentance and reconciliation through faith in Jesus Christ. It is really as simple as this. We we always want to dress up more things and add more things to the gospel, add more things to the good news of Jesus Christ, add in things that we have to do so we feel like we're in some way responsible for saving ourselves. But we are not, and we see it in these verses. In verse 43, Jesus assures him, He has indeed received eternal salvation and forgiveness through faith. And He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, let's think about this for just a moment. Let's reflect on the nature of this salvation for just a moment, right? What? How did this guy get saved? He's nailed to a cross. Here's a guy who in the afternoon began, he is condemned by both the Roman government and by God for his sins, who is insulting Jesus as he is dying. And after he spends an afternoon beside Jesus Christ, he is assured that his eternal destination is paradise, heaven, the presence of God. What did he do? What happened? Well, the point is, he didn't do anything. That's what makes this such an effective understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This man did nothing to earn his salvation. He was nailed to a cross. He couldn't hop down and, and help feed widows and orphans, make up for a lifetime of not going to church. He was nailed to a cross, and yet he was saved that very afternoon. He wasn't redeemed or reformed in the eyes of the world, right? He's still going to die as a criminal. There was no pardon from the governor, no stay of execution, and yet his eternal destination had been changed completely because he believed. Suddenly he was a child of God, washed clean with the very innocence and righteousness of Christ credited to his account, that, that mountain of debt wiped away, credited to his account by the God of the universe. And in this work of salvation that Jesus does on the cross that Friday afternoon, we, we see why this is indeed the week that changed the world. 
that because of what took place on the cross that afternoon, there is hope for each of us. You see, in the salvation of this condemned evildoer, there is hope for every single person. There is hope for every person, no matter how distant they may be from God at this moment in their life. There is hope for every person, no matter how despised they are by the world, or even how much they despise themselves. This salvation of Jesus that we see demonstrated on the cross is available to the last, the least, the loser, the dregs of humanity, the the dying criminals. And it costs nothing to receive it because Jesus paid the price that afternoon on the cross. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. We often clench up. How hard is it to explain the gospel? It's too complicated. There's too much doctrine. There's a, no, we see it right here in this criminal hanging on a cross. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good news that has the power to transform our our broken and seemingly hopeless world. You know, look around. Our world is not in good shape. This is the good news that can transform it. This is the good news that we must be proclaiming as we step out of these warm and comfortable walls and enter into that world that is cold, that surrounds us, that is filled with darkness. This is the good news we need to proclaim so we can bring hope to the lost and the last, the hurting and the broken, even the condemned, the hope that we carry through the innocence, the forgiveness, and the eternal salvation of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, there is so much that takes place on the cross. We could Theologians can write volumes about it. We can spend rest of our life meditating on it and probably should. But there's also a simplicity about it that we must never lose sight of. That in his pure innocence, in his radical forgiveness, and in the eternal salvation that he offers, Jesus Christ transforms each and every person who turns to him as Lord and Savior. And Lord, as we prepare to leave this place, this is what I want us to take with us as we go, Lord, that this is, as we look into the week ahead, as we look ahead to the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, that we remember why this week changed the world and that we become part of that changing of the world, that we do our part to tell this story, to tell this good news of our innocent, forgiving, saving Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we worship in song and prepare to depart into this world, we want you to take time to reflect on all that God has been speaking into your heart today. And most particularly, if there is anyone here who has not yet embraced this good news of Jesus Christ that we see displayed to this this criminal nailed to a cross, good news offered to all who put their faith in Jesus Christ who accept His sacrifice, His innocent, perfect sacrifice, that He paid the penalty for you. If there is any here who have not yet done that, I would invite you to make that decision today. Take that step of faith. Embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, like that criminal on the cross. Understand His salvation is just like that. 
But grace is just like that, a gift that is offered freely by God, and all you have to do is accept it. For all others, my question is, what does God want you to do with this in the coming days? As the world thinks about bunnies and candy, what does God want you to do with a cross, criminals, a bloody sacrifice of an innocent Savior? Just ask that you would respond to these things as God leads. As we worship in song, if there's anything you want to pray about or pray with us, you're welcome to come to the front to meet Pastor Neil or myself. Otherwise, let us worship.